This episode of the MGMA podcast is brought to you by Walmart Business. It's the Walmart you love, now for business. Get everything you need for your staff and patients in one place. Enjoy big savings on health and safety products, cleaning supplies, over-the-counter medications, and much more. And don't forget the break room snacks. Create a free account today and start shopping at business.walmart.com. That's business.walmart.com. Unlock the full potential of your healthcare data with practical data solutions. Benchmarks take on new meaning when blended with key performance indicators like expense, productivity, scheduling, and patient satisfaction data. Optimize your reporting to make better decisions with PDS Analytics. Discover how at pds-online.com slash mgma. Well, hi, everyone. I'm Daniel Williams, Senior Editor of MGMA and host of the MGMA Podcast Network. Today, we are happy to welcome Blake Hendrickson to the show. Blake has his PhD and an FACMPE, and he's currently Assistant Professor, Department of Health and Human Performance, and he's Program Director of the Master of Healthcare and Administration Program at Austin P. State University. Blake, welcome to the show. Thanks. Glad yeah. to be here. Appreciate yeah, you having me. Glad to have you here. So just to get to know you a little bit better, um, what got you interested in healthcare in the first place? Tell us a little bit about that healthcare journey that you've experienced. So I'll make a long story short as I can. Um, <laughs> my dad was an entrepreneur and we had sold one of the businesses that I was heavily involved in. And I got a call from the closing attorney, maybe six months or a year, even after and said, Hey, did you ever think about getting into healthcare? And I said, no, immediately. Um, and he said, well, what if uh, an organization flew you to Florida, had four kids, gave you a place to stay for two weeks, and all you had to do was two interviews, and they gave us X amount of dollars to do that? I said, okay, I'll go. It's just two interviews. <laughs> and before the second interview was over, I said, I want this job. What can I do? And it was because it was it was Adventist Health System, now Advent Health, Um Two of my great mentors are the ones that happened to interview me, and um, they uh, they owned a string of, this was urgent care before urgent care was cool, <laughs> um, but they pretty much said, you can do anything you want. We just can't lose any more money. You've got like nine months, so I knew that on the front end, um, and so we were doing things in urgent care that people are now doing. We were going to cars to find out what was wrong with people before we brought them in. We did not have a waiting room to speak of. There was one, but nobody said in there over 30 seconds. They went straight to the uh, treatment room where the perception, by the way, is seven times of what you wait is according to reality. So we actually put, we didn't put clock, there was no clocks in there when I got there. What we did was we put actually a clock in there with a timer that counted up so they could tell how many minutes they were there. We wanted them to know. It also brought satisfaction to them. So after, so I spent nine years with them. They moved to Florida, as you probably know, where they were headquartered anyway. Um, 
And then I went to work for the HCA, CHS, uh, S's of the group of the world, did some consulting with LifePoint, um, joined a large consulting company. And uh, while I was working at CHS and doing some consulting, I came home one day and I'd had a meeting with doctors to negotiate their contracts at 4 a.m. And then I had a 9 p.m. meeting with a practice we were trying to acquire. And I told my wife, I said, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> so at age 51, I went back to get my PhD. Wow. Um, okay. And finished that while I was still working full time. Tell um, us about the PhD then. What is that in? Like, what's your dissertation? That sort of thing. Just give us an so idea. So my dissertation was in patient satisfaction. Oh, okay. Um, and uh, so my my degree is in man- actually management. Um, mm-hmm. And... Uh, it took me almost the t- entire time they give you, but uh, <laughs> that was okay because I was working. Um, yeah. But I don't know. My wife would agree with that because it was pretty much seven days a week because the weekends were consumed with the PhD. Right. Well, that's great. Thank you for sharing that with us. Now you and I originally connected on LinkedIn. I think a lot of people in the business world make connections there. Um, You've been involved, and what I found out from that is you've been involved in some research. Uh, tell us about this research. What was involved with it? What's the time frame? Anything else? What Give us a general overview of this study. So I haven't ever done a lot of research in my life, <clears throat> but being an assistant professor, you have to. Yeah. <laughs> so this is, but, but it was interesting. It was a. Uh, uh, the Tennessee MGMA was very interested in me doing this, so I did this um, in, in, you know, sort of an agreement with them. Mm-hmm. It was a nine month. that was from September of last year, nine months going forward. Okay. So, and I presented it to the state organization three weeks ago, um, and it involved RNs, LPNs, medical assistants, CNAs, uh, anybody who is a clinician. We had a couple of laboratory technicians, um, and basically, I had sent out a few flyers to hospitals and uh, medical groups that I knew real well, and they put it up in their break room, and then it went wild. I, after the, gaining the first thirty interviews, I got lots of calls, mm-hmm. and what I did was a, I did sort of the qualitative, quantitative mix method. I would interview the person, um, but then look at that, how it came out quantitatively. And we ended up talking to almost 500 people hmm. uh, over that time period. And um, I don't know how much detail you want, but one thing that we were talking about is one of the real surprises of that survey is the intent to leave, uh, especially from RNs. Um, 81% of the people that are in hospitals that are RNs said they intended to leave their current organization in the next 18 months. Wow. Yeah, that's medical groups is a lot lower. Yeah. Um, let me follow up then. So when you began the study, what were the topic areas or the general themes that you were knocking around there? You know, obviously the data is going to tell you what is what is factual, but what were you looking to uncover? What what was the topic then? So basically I started the interview saying asking a couple of questions about the intent to leave and things like that. 
but then I wanted to know what would keep you here. Okay. What would what did the employer need to provide you with for you not to consider leaving? Uh, that I mean, you wouldn't consider it if you got a big promotion somewhere else, but right. uh, you know that you wouldn't be actively pursuing something. Correct. Yeah, there's a real difference there. One is I'm out on <laughs> job sites looking every day, or some through the networks, someone connects with you and gives you the old offer you can't refuse kind of situation. So right, right, yeah. that's exactly right. Yeah. So let's let's break that down then. So. Uh, one of the things you sent to me a while back, a few weeks ago, was you mentioned the challenges of keeping nurses at an organization right now. We already know that there are nursing shortages, so that um, puts stressors on practices in the first place. But then to keep them there, what are those challenges? What did you find in your research? So a, a lot of them um, are burnout. Okay. Uh, that may have been one of the, that was the top, I, I, can, I can list the top three. Um, they didn't think they were being paid enough, okay. um, especially with in, in their market. Um, too much workload that was not necessarily at the top of their licensure and burnout. Um, retirement was very small. That was, you know, because the, the survey had a lot of people under 45 years old, mm -hmm. which is what you usually find when you go to hospitals. Yeah. Medical groups was a little different. I mean, the average age of our responding was, was higher. Um, same issues though, but uh, easier to address. I think in an organ, in a medical organization, that's why I think the numbers were lower. The people that were not people that would not consider leaving, by the way, Daniel, in medical group organizations was way over 50 percent. So a lot of content employees and applaud the medical organizations for doing that. Mm -hmm. I don't know if your research looked at this, but if they're looking to leave. Are they looking to leave in? and then remain in the medical field. And let me follow that up. If they're going to plan to stay uh, in the medical field um, and burnout is the problem, is it, I guess what I'm getting at is that one of those grass is greener type situations. How do you know you're not going to be burned out in the next place if you're burned out here or are right, they, they looking? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah mean, I think that that is a lot of it. The grass is greener and I'm not, Sure, not trying to say this study is totally what's going to happen. Right. It's just I was very surprised the numbers were that high. Right. And it's not to make any commentary on the people looking, because when you're in a burned out situation, I've certainly been there in the workplace. You and I were talking offline. You had gotten kind of, if I can paraphrase you, a little fed up at, a, at some previous stops along yeah. your track. And so we get there and then you're just maybe you almost feel like anything's better than what I'm in I, right now. And sometimes it doesn't work out that way. Now, if you parlay that and you, it, you said that pay is one of the issues. And if you're getting a bump in pay, then that is at least uh, that ticks that particular box, but it might not tick that uh, burnout box. So I do want to go back to let's stay with burnout for a minute. Then if that is one of the challenges, what are you seeing to alleviate or at least lessen some of that pain of burnout right now? What are some ways we can address that? 
So um, one of the articles that I published was also a small study um, of how, how we can stop that. And the, the bottom line answer is to make sure if it's the, whether it's an RN, LPN, MA, CNA, uh, or somebody off the street who just trained to do a few things, that they're operating at the top of what they've been trained for. Mm-hmm. A lot of RNs, I don't know that they really would have been burnt out if they weren't asking to, they thought these, the EHRs were going to be the answer to everything. And yet most of them said, I think it was about 62, 62% said that they were doing the same or more paperwork since the EHR. Um, they need to be pulled off that and hire somebody who can do it. That's doesn't, it's not an RN. And, uh, you know, we need our CEOs and a lot of them are, and we're seeing great strides, but they've got to be innovative. And this goes back, I mean, 20, I found the, the longest study ago that I found was like over 20 years ago, um, that putting innovation in with the way that clinicians do their work was masterful and helped them retain employees. And that goes all the way. Telehealth is a big deal. Nurses can do it just as well. Um, I know you're usually a nurse practitioner or a doctor, but that was uh, that was also found. Um, and we're seeing patient care. The organizations that are doing really well with keeping people, some of the patient care is being handed off to nurses um, to a certain point, of course, not you know, not where the doctor needs to be in there. And the, Daniel, the patient satisfaction is higher. Um, and not not only that, but, you know, this is a, a big trend now with government insurances that we talk about patient safety and preventive measures. Uh, the nurse is more likely to do that than the doctor, according to our study. Now, that's according to the nurses. I did not interview any doctors yet. I've worked with several hundred of them, so I would say it's fairly accurate to say that. Mm-hmm. I want to get to patient satisfaction in a minute, but first I wanted to ask you about another area that you have uh, conducted research in. It might have been in this paper as well, um, but that's managing healthcare in tumultuous times. Um, what can you tell us about that? What has your research told you about that? Because it's, as we know, it's difficult enough in uh, <laughs> happy times. But uh, if you get into a either uh, kind of the the shortage, the workforce shortage we have now, the COVID era, all these different impacts that we've had um, that can make it even worse. So tell us about that. So people might laugh at that tumultuous times. And uh, this was an article also, because uh, healthcare seems to always be that. <laughs> right. Um, but I mean, there, there were a lot of things. Um, I think the main takeaways, and this is from a fairly long paper, but um, we have to have CEOs, practice man, administrators, whatever, that are well-read and keep up to date with what's mm-hmm. going on in healthcare. That's a must. If you let that slide over a month, you're in trouble. Um, and some of the nurses, by the way, in that nine-month study told us that. They didn't think their manager was up to date at all. Um, we did find that transformational leadership is the best compared to laissez-faire or the others. Um, so the leaders got to do that as well as build. This is really 
simple to say, it's hard to do. Build a family culture. Mm-hmm. And the reason I say that is, is because it came up. If I read you the comments from all the nurses that I talked to, that was brought up in one way or the other. They might not have used the word family, but they felt like they could go to anybody in the organization and talk. Some of them did not had, didn't even know who their CEO was or CFO or even COO. Um, they couldn't name them because they came and went so quick. Huh. Um, they, uh, I, I think when hiring, and this has been happening since really about 1980, it started. Uh, when you're hiring for leadership positions, consider physicians. Um, we've come full circle with that. In the early days of healthcare, physicians mainly were the leaders. And then we got away from that. Um, and we still are, we have a long way to go. Um, but physicians have got to be considered for some of the leadership. Maybe not necessarily the tough decisions on how to do things. I mean, but there are people, and I even found one in urgent care a long time ago that made our chief medical officer and he sat with the board and myself and helped make decisions. And we actually allowed his vote to count one and a half. Um, so I think that's that's very critical too. A lot, a lot, as you know, a lot of the concerns right now are AI. Mm-hmm. And is that, am I going to keep my job? Well, yes, you can, as long as you embrace AI and what it can do for you and look for different opportunities. Um, it's, uh, it, it's, it's a fact it's not going away. So the idea is you've got to learn to embrace that. Mm-hmm. And I think the last thing, and I'm not, none of these are real revelations, um, revelations that to be the leader needs to be nimble. Yeah. Uh, you've got to have an organization, no matter how big that can move quickly. Um, HCA may have trouble doing that. They, they, maybe they don't, I don't know. Not haven't been with them in a long time, but, uh, you know, the organizations like a, let's say a seven location or even a 35 practice, practice provider practice organization can move quicker usually. Especially, Daniel, if you have a physician agreeing with the CEO, saying, yeah. hey, we got to do this. Um, a, a physician who's in senior leadership who also becomes very familiar with the finances and can see why things are going. So the best organization I worked with, as far as that was concerned, the CFO and the physician CMO were close, very close. They shared everything. Mm-hmm. And that made things run so much smoother. Like I said, I didn't have to do my job, but I had backup. Um, and eventually, you know, but it is tough to find that right person. I think it's becoming easier. We see a lot of physicians going back to, we now, I think last year we had over 350,000 physicians take leadership classes mm-hmm. um, compared to 10 years ago, and it was about 12,000. Um, so that's, you know, I think physicians are starting to see that, and they're going back to school. Um, wow. Or at least taking online classes and things like that. In our MHA program, we have a nurse practitioner, um, and we're getting more applicants like that, so that that see that this is a, that's a very important for their role. Yeah. So. That's great. Now, one other area I want to ask you about is that patient satisfaction. You said you had uh, done your dissertation on that. So tell us about what you've, what you've uncovered or what uh, the data has shown you on patient satisfaction. And we could even look at it through the lens of uh, what you've seen 
pre-COVID to like today, what are we seeing? How have things changed, if at all? So one, one I guess, a, a summary question that answers your second part is the expectations are now higher. Okay. Um, and while we hear that term, you know, under promise over deliver, which was real important pre-COVID, now it's almost impossible. <laughs> you have to just find those expectations and meet them. They don't expect to wait in waiting rooms. They do expect uh, a doctor to come in or a nurse practitioner, a PA to come into their treatment room within seven minutes. That's the goal. That is that is pretty much a standard from a, hmm. my dissertation study. Um, that's tough, but it also helps uh, physicians increase volume. And uh, patient satisfaction was not uh, the doctors that are listening not gonna like this. Um, patient satisfaction did not necessarily equate with seeing an MD. If it was a situation where a nurse practitioner could get there quicker, and it was a small cut, or you know, I told you I had a broken elbow right now, was diagnosed by a PA, okay. um, and uh, so I, I think. That's what we have to do. We have to be quick to respond and we have to, and it's becoming more and more. I were, I did consulting with a survey company that sold for, I don't know how much money. Um, and basically as well, I had my knee replaced and this survey company happened to be working with that group. I got my survey for the anesthesiologist um, and the surgeon as I was leaving the parking lot to go home. Um, wow. On my phone. Mm -hmm. That's a key too. some people do not want to pay for the phone part of the survey. And yet the response rate is about 600 percent higher. So and, you know, Medicare and H caps don't do that. Um, and they should <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, um, they're a little behind. I don't know. And they always have. And I don't know if they'll catch up. Yeah. Well, Let's for our final uh, line of questioning. I know you've had a relationship with MGMA. I'm always interested in that. How did that begin? Tell us about that relationship with with the organization. Yeah, so I was taken to lunch by uh, the president of the Tennessee MGMA at that time, over 25 years ago, Tom Stearns, and he said, "Hey, you need to get into this." Okay. So I did. Um, I mean, he was he was a well he's he is still a well known leader in healthcare. He's retired, but um, I, and I I went ahead and got my certified pretty quickly within mm -hmm. after I passed the couple of year mark. Um, I I did not go for the fellowship for seven more years. Um, I mean, we had grown from five urgent cares to twenty seven, and that was my excuse is that I was too busy. But it was not as hard as people think it is um, if you do the work. I, I'm a grader now for MGMA, mm -hmm. you know, and that fellowship situation has changed a lot. So, you know, when I got it, you had a little questioning. You felt like you were in a concentration camp with a spotlight on you and seven people on one side of the table and you on the other. But that's not there anymore. Um, and there are several graders that grade your business plan or what you submit. For fellowship and uh i'll tell you what the daniel i can tell you the quality of the work from about seven years ago when i started grading to now is 
incredible. Um, so MGMA has done a great job of making that not an easier task at all, mm-hmm. but a more thoughtful and a better education. So, well, that'll be good news to uh, Nikki Klaus and the team that uh, handles that. So, uh, yeah, that's yeah. always Nikki, good. Nikki's great. Yeah. She really is. She does a great job with the with the program. All right. Well, a final question then before we sign off, what would you like to share with us to uh, what we could do better about developing healthcare leaders? I know you've mentioned some things already about culture and or uh, leadership and continuing education. Any final thoughts you want to share with us? So if I'm a CEO or a practice administrator, I would search for ways to help. And, you know, it depends on the physician. Um, whether you give them advanced articles or small ones or maybe then education opportunities um, to keep them in the loop. Start communicating with them about, hey, we sure want to make sure you stay with us and that you're happy here. So we would like to send you some leadership, um, you you know, some ways to acquire leadership skills. I probably wouldn't say it that way because they they many of them think they already have those, but ways to refine leadership skills for the future. so communication, again, was one of the reasons that nurses are, intend to leave. Um, they don't have it. And the ones that love the places they're at, communication was huge. And again, that's, you know, a 50, 50-year-old cliche, communication is key. But probably now more than ever, as yeah. we see the trend of physicians becoming leaders and, um, and other things in healthcare, AI, things like that. Yeah. So. There's a lot of fear out there, Daniel, and it's our job to answer it. Mm-hmm. Well, Blake, uh, I just want to thank you for joining us today. It's great that we connected on LinkedIn and can keep in touch with each other moving forward. So uh, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate you reaching out. All right. Well, that is going to do it for this episode of MGMA's Insights Podcast. Thanks again to Blake Hendrickson for sharing his thoughts on healthcare. Um, In our episode show notes, I'm going to provide some direct links to points of interest discussed today. Uh, And thanks again for listening and being a part of the MGMA Podcast Network. Join us at the Leaders Conference, hosted by MGMA, powered by you, where top minds gather to accelerate the success of ambulatory care and medical practices. Join us in Nashville, October 22nd through the 25th. Register today at mgma.com slash leaders. The popular buzzword we've been seeing everywhere is AI. But what we all want to know is how we can implement and use it to our advantage. When it comes to improving margins, accelerating cash flow, In optimizing staff performance, there's a one-stop shop using cloud-based predictive analytics. MGMA Analytics is your AI-enabled tool that upscales technology you've already been paying for, so you can silo your disparate systems and make data-backed business decisions. Visit mgma.com slash analytics and see how AI can revolutionize your finances and operations. Again, visit mgma.com analytics today.